Today we are continuing our study on the attributes of God, and I'm going to be talking about some attributes of God that we do not share with him. And then Matthew's going to come with some that we do later. But for right now, we can turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 in your Bibles. That's going to be our home, our base passage today, at least for me. Today, um, as you can see right here, we're going to be talking about how God is um, hes high above all things, He's far above everything, and He's too great to fully comprehend. He's high above Every, he's higher than our imaginations could ever take us. And so, um, in fact, let's start with a word of prayer before we delve into that. Dear Father, um, thank you that we have this time together. I pray that you will open my mouth to speak uh, the words uh, of your truth uh, based uh, strongly in Scripture and not my own uh, vain imaginations, Father. I pray that everyone else will be blessed by this, that we will come to realize um, how amazingly, um, how much bigger you are than we could even imagine, Father. So bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, to, uh, let's just start thinking about how God is high above us. Let's take an honest look. Let's see how high God really is above us. I'll, I'm going to do that by asking some questions. So, has anyone here... Raise of hands. Has anyone measured the waters of the seas in the hollow of their hand? Just, just go ahead and tell me if you have. I see like that, the Caribbean in your, in your hand. No? Okay. Next question. Has anyone measured heaven with the span of their hand? You know, from the pinky to the tip of the thumb. Has anyone gone star to star? You know? No? Okay. What? All right, keep stretching your fingers apart. Has anyone, next question, measured the mountains on scales? Has anyone picked up two mountains and placed them on a balance and to see which one is heavier? Has, no one's accomplished that feat? All right, the truth is you don't have to answer. Uh, these are the exact same questions that Isaiah the prophet was asking the people of Judah uh, 2,700 years ago. And they are rhetorical questions. The people weren't expected to answer these questions. They were simply supposed to sit in silence like you are now and to put their situation into perspective. Uh, the answer to all these questions is God alone. Um, only He can do it. No one can compare to Him. No one can challenge Him. Only He can do that. Um, so why is Isaiah giving this exhortation? Why is he trying to stress how nothing can compare to God? Well, if we look at Ju the kingdom of Judah's situation at the time, they were surrounded by enemy nations. Well, well, they were actually surrounded by enemy nations their entire history. But at this moment, uh, the, Babylonian, uh, the Babylonian Empire in particular was rising up as a threat in the east. And Isaiah, in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 39, actually just, uh, just got done prophesying that Babylon was going to come and conquer and deport Judah because of a sin that King Hezekiah had just committed. So the bad news has already been given. Now, Isaiah the prophet, the prophet is trying to encourage the people to remain faithful to God and trust in Him to deliver them. So, but the, the people of Judah are probably wondering, how can we know that God is strong enough to save us? Is He more powerful than our enemies? Or should we be putting our faith in another? How can we know that He knows what is best for us? 
So Isaiah is using these questions to drive home the point that God is in control. You can trust Him. But they must have come back and said, how can God control a foreign army? They don't worship or obey Him, so why would they listen? Uh, And it's important to understand, uh, especially in more ancient religions, there was a much more local idea of God. You know, you had the God of the Canaanites, and He was in Canaan. And, or he might even be isolated to a single hill. Or you had a god of the Babylonians, he lived in Babylon. And it wasn't very widespread that you had this idea of a, a god over everything, over all nations. So maybe the people are being influenced by this pagan thought. But anyway, Isaiah is contradicting that, and, he, and he's saying that he's over all things. He's saying that God is sovereign over everything. Now why is God sovereign? God is sovereign because he transcends all limitations. Transcends. This is a key word. Now let's go into this. What is transcendence? Well, I looked it up in Webster's New World College Dictionary and to transcend is defined as, number one, to go beyond the limits of or overstep. We see number two is to be superior to, to surpass or excel. And then especially theologically, uh, definition three is to separate from to be separate from or beyond from something, especially the material universe. So God is beyond the material universe. The word transcend comes from the Latin transcendere, which means to climb over. Uh, Trans means over. Scandere is to climb. Transcend is the opposite of descend. De means under, so you'd be climbing under. Uh, So you get the idea. It's climbing over something. But an important point to realize is that God is transcendent. The suffix ent is the suffix of being, uh, which means that God is not in the process of climbing over something. God is in a state of being above and beyond, superior to everything. Amen. Now, what is the key to God's transcendence? The key is that He is the Creator. God cannot be dependent on or limited by anything which he has created. Uh, he must be beyond that. Uh, what did he create? The universe. So let's talk about God transcending the universe. Well, God created time, space, and matter. So therefore, he must be outside of and independent of time, space, and matter. Therefore, nothing that is inside of time, space, and matter, which is this world, and everything in it, including us, can manipulate God. Nothing can. God can't be manipulated because he is not dependent on anything which he has created. So if he's not dependent on it, why must he be manipulated by it? To to emphasize this point, we're going to leave Isaiah's exhortation for a little bit, and you can turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul the Apostle has just arrived in Athens, and he gets... um, He's troubled by the idolatry in Athens, and so he starts to preach to the philosophers on Mars Hill. And he's trying to stress how God is larger than their idolatrous worship and how he's in control over all nations, which is eventually his call to repentance to the Athenians. Um, So in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25, Paul declares, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. That's because he's the one who made the world and everything in it, that he doesn't need anything. And 
it's important to understand that in the pagan cultures of the time, including in Athens, uh, you would have idols of gods erected in a temple, and they would, and the priests would serve and cater to their gods. Um, in some pagan cultures, you know, you'd feed them. Quite literally, you would put them to sleep. You you cater to these gods, these idols, and the gods needed that provision. And so, in exchange for that provision, they would grant you favors. And so, in effect, the gods could be manipulated by the worshippers. You you know, you could actually do a certain ritual or perform a certain sacrifice, and you could invoke a certain response from the gods. They were completely manipulated. Now, this is much different than the worship system of the Old Testament, as similar as it sounds with sacrifices and temples. In the Old Testament, the goal was to have fellowship with God, and that was impossible because God was too holy. We were sinful, and God was too holy to be in the presence of sin. So the sacrifice was a way to... Um, to temporarily atone for your sins that you could just come into the presence of God and from there beseech Him for a miracle or fellowship with Him. But God was still sovereign to, to grant you a miracle or not or to do as He wills. He was not manipulated by the sacrifice. So anyway, Paul stresses this to show that God needs nothing from His creation. There is nothing that can control God. He is independent. And then we also see that everything is dependent on God. So Paul has said, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. And then he continues, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. For in him we live and move and have our being in this God. So since everything was created by God and depends on God for its very existence, there is nothing that God cannot control. He can, you know, he can do anything. He can stop the rain, stop one's breath. He can stir the heart of a king a certain way to accomplish whatever he wants. So God is able to pre-appoint the times and boundaries of all the nations on the earth and really all human activity. He's completely sovereign over it all. So now going back to Isaiah 40, you can switch back. This is why Judah can trust that God could save them. God created the Babylonians and their empire. He ultimately controls who they conquer and how long they rule. So Isaiah uses this truth to comfort, to comfort Judah and teach them to trust in God. Now, if we look in the passage in chapter 40, verses 12 through 14, Isaiah uses the rhetorical questions that I posed to you earlier uh, to show the greatness of God. Then in verses 15 through 17, Isaiah shows how the nations who are threatening Judah cannot compare to this God he's just described. So in verse uh, 15, Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles like a very small thing. All nation, and then in verse 17, All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. The nations can do nothing against the God, their God, who is so far above them. And another key thing is that the Babylonians' gods can also do nothing against the God of Judah. You see, Judah's God is the transcendent God who rules over everything. The Babylonians' gods are mere idols, finite gods that could be represented through the imagination of man. So they have nothing, they cannot stand up against the true God of Judah. Uh, 
So Isaiah is, brings out that point in verses 18 through 22. Uh, well, what he's doing is actually he's showing the futility of the Babylonians' worship and he's telling Judah not to bring the true God, Yahweh, down to the same level as those finite gods of the Babylonians. And that's what he does in verses 18 through 22. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not heard? Known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. In verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. And you see, this is the real sin of idolatry, or having statues that represent God. It's that one is bringing God down from his infinite transcendent glory. Amen? The full extent of who God is cannot be imagined by the human mind. Therefore, an idol, which is a creation of the human mind, is insufficient and dishonoring to God. We are, what we are doing is we're equating God with the powerless gods of the heathen. Now this leads into our next point, God being high above our imaginations, our, above our ability to know. He's incomprehensible. Now, if God is beyond time, space, and matter, how can our minds, which are confined by time, space, and matter, comprehend Him? Let's, let's even try thinking about, not even Him, but the things He has created. Try think about the size of the universe. What is it? Is it, is it infinite space? That's hard. That boggles the mind. Or, or if it's not infinite space, if there's a limit, what's at the end of the universe? A wall? Well... If there's a wall, what's on the other side of the wall? You know, it boggles the mind. What is that? We can't imagine it. Or, or in reference to time, try to think about God having no beginning, always existing. See, we are beings that are trapped inside of time. Everything that is must have had a beginning. But God doesn't have a beginning, and that boggles the mind. It's, it's, our minds cannot fathom the full extent of who God is. That's just the truth. This is what's being discussed in Job Chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. It's, uh, it says, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than hell. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So, what this does is it makes useless all of our attempts to figure God out by our own power. Using philosophy or human reason, they are futile attempts to try to, to figure God out and it will never work. The only way, this is key, the only way we can have a correct understanding of God is if He decides to reveal and describe Himself to us in simple terms that we can understand and yet still give us an accurate depiction of who He is. And that is exactly what the Bible is. And that's what I want to talk about today. The incomprehensible God has given us just enough information 
to know what he wants us to know about himself. It does not tell us everything about God because we cannot understand it and our, and our human words couldn't even describe it. But the Bible tells us all that God wants us to know and that we can know in this lifetime. So, some practical application of this. God's transcendence, in effect, forces us to fully rely on Scripture for our understanding of God. We must not put our ultimate trust in the words of any man. And that was cool because I didn't even organize it with Lev, but he's just talking about how we find our truth in the Scripture. And, you know, if you don't have a great understanding of Scripture, you can go to a man trained in the Word, but even then, until it's in Scripture, that's, that's our final authority, not the words of any man. We don't follow Paul or Apollos, but Christ, and His words are in the Bible. So, and it makes sense. Can the mind of a finite man grasp the composition of the transcendent God? And the answer is no. The only men we should listen to are those who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write God's Word down for us in the Bible. And we see this, uh, Peter talks about this in his second epistle, chapter 1, verses 20-21. He says, Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures. The man could not come to the truth of scripture on his own. And now that we have the words of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, that's our authority. Never again the words of any man. So any religion that claims that human tradition or reasoning, whether it be a church council or synod, a catechism, or a Talmud, whether he be a patriarch, a pastor, or a pope, or piper, uh, or, (laughs) it's true, or whether that reasoning is just our own unfounded opinions about God, any religion that claims that, that these can equal the authority of divine scripture is bringing God down from his incomprehensible glory. And when you bring God down, uh, from his incomprehensible glory, you are fathoming God by your own design. In your minds, you are thinking and deciding who God is. And what you're doing is you are fashioning a God in your own mind, by your own design. What is that? That's idolatry. That is the exact same sin that Isaiah is telling the people of Judah not to do, in a physical sense. Don't take these false gods, or don't take the real God and make him into a you know, a statue, your own design. Well, we're doing the same things in our minds. If we take God down from his incomprehensible glory and and make him in our own minds, it's idolatry. We must accept God as he's presented in the Bible and not change who he is in our own minds to fit our own desires. And the world loves to do that. So what I want to do now is I want to go through some idols that we often find enshrined deep in our hearts. I want to flesh them out and then contrast them and compare them to the Bible so we can get a real accurate depiction of who this God is. Just a few examples. Uh, So, first of all, we'll talk about more commonly what unbelievers will believe in, uh, the world. Uh, The first idol they hold to is a universalist God with many names and many faces. You know, it's the ecumenical movement of today. It's the, they say that, you know, all these different religions, Allah, God of the Bible, maybe Buddha, Confucius, any, any God, uh, that they're all the same God, they're just revealed differently to different people. 
and they, the, that's what they like to say, but the truth of the Bible, what do we see now? Let's go through the truth of the Bible. God has revealed himself to us as unique and incompatible with any other gods. Uh, the first scripture reference, Exodus 23, the first commandment, who knows it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay, so God is at odds with these other gods. It's not him in a different revelation. He's at odds with them. They're false. We also see in 1 Corinthians 10, 19-22, Paul is talking about sacrificing to idols to the first century church, and he says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which, are, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So you are, in any other religion, you are worshiping a demon that's deceiving the masses. You're not worshiping God in another revelation. And we can see that if we go to the Bible. Another idol that we hold to, or that unbelievers more commonly will hold to, is a semi-just God. Now, God, man wants God to be good. We like that. The God of love. The God, you know, whenever there's a good thing, a marriage or a child, it's God. He's a God of love. And also, humans want God to be fair. They want God to, to do what's right. But, even though He is fair, they want Him to let them into heaven, even if they've sinned. That's, they assume that about God. Perhaps because they've made it up with good deeds. Or the religious person will, he will do the sacraments or make penance or go to church and have good intentions. You know, they'll find some way to justify how God will let them into heaven. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that just one sin misses God's perfect standard. In James chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, it says, you know, the people are, are being partial amongst themselves. Who's more important? And he says, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And he goes on to say, and he's making the point that it's not about whether you committed adultery, you know, just, just coveted or just or partial, or you committed adultery or murdered. God views you, views you as either a transgressor or a not transgressor, as perfect or sinful. Um, I've once heard it said that God's standard or his law is like a sheet of glass, a pane of glass. It's either kept perfectly or it's broken completely. And, we've see, and we see in Scripture that all have, have broken it. They've all sinned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This forces us to the conclusion that we cannot be good enough for this God of the Bible. We are brought to an end of ourselves where we stop relying on our own works and rely on Christ's blood alone. In Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death. You deserve death. But the undeserved gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, just uh, if anyone in the room or if anyone is still relying on your own good deeds to get to heaven, you must realize that you will never meet the standards of the perfect God in the Bible. God has revealed to us how to get to Him, and that's only by accepting the sacrifice He provided and trusting in that blood sacrifice alone for your salvation. So now that we've gone over that, a lot of you in the room are saying, Brother, I don't have such misconceptions about God. I'm a good born-again believer. 
I've accepted Christ as my only way to heaven. And that's really good. I'm glad that we don't hold to those idols. At least most of us who have come to, to know Jesus truly. But believers also have some difficulty shedding wrong, conce- wrong conceptions about God. So let's go over some of those. A lot of a big misconception, a big idol that we hold to is a God who always wants us to be happy. I've been thinking about this. Um, we have the idea that now we are children of God. God wants nothing more for us than to be happy. And when things go wrong, we look to God as if he's to blame. It actually can cause a faith crisis. It does in many believers. Because why is God, how can God be doing this? But if we really take an honest look at Scripture, we can see that God's main concern for us is conforming us to be like Christ, to make us holy, and not necessarily on our own happiness. Amen? We look in Hebrews 12, 5-7. The writer says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges Every son whom he received. Scourges. That is a hard spanking. Scourges. Wow. I was never scourged as a child. I was spanked. But, um, I lost my place. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And then in verse 11, Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And that's God's real concern, is yielding righteousness, not our happiness. Now, instead of realizing this uh, as the reason for trials and hardship, uh, a lot of times we go to the other extreme, and we start viewing God by another idol, a God who doesn't know what is best for us. Uh, We feel God is only out to make our lives hard for His sake. Uh, If we follow his will, we'll do something miserable. And we think we need to follow with a guarded mind instead of following God's full desire for us. And uh, William MacDonald had an interesting thing to say about that. Um, He says, We would plan our lives exactly the same way he planned them if we had his wisdom. And that's really true. You see, God transcends our current situation. There's our transcendence again. He sees the bigger picture. So while we might see the immediate harsh circumstances and blame God, why are you doing this bad thing to me? He sees the bigger picture and he sees how it's fulfilling a greater good. And we're promised that he is working things together for good. In Romans 8.28 he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we have the promise that that these trials are, are for something good. And we have to believe that if we believe in the God of the Bible. So these are examples of ideas of God that people hold to because they try to understand him with their finite minds, not with the Bible. But we need to always be turning to the Bible to find out who God is. We need to stop making God who we want him to be and trying to make him do what we want. Instead, we need to seek to have him make us what he wants us to be and to find out what he wants us to do. Amen? Like Judah, we must revere and obey our transcendent God. We must not diminish him in our hearts. And we must trust that because he is above all things, he is in control and he will take care of us. Alright, so now that we've talked about 
how God is above all things and controls all things, we're going to, Matthew Johnson is going to come up and he's going to talk about how God will do so fairly, justly, and righteously. Or will he? So, Matthew Johnson. situated quick all right we will get off quickly uh jeff just shared with us two attributes of god that we do not share and those attributes were just to go over them again um too great to fully comprehend and far above all now i'm going to talk about an attribute that we actually share with god um, or that we should be sharing with god and that can be summed up with God is fair, just, and right. And now that's three different concepts, but they all kind of come into one idea. So, ah. all right, so let's define our terms. What are we really talking about here? Well, first of all, just and right, or righteousness, are synonyms. In fact, in English, you know, we have two words for that in English. But in Greek and in Hebrew, there's actually only one set of words for the both of them. Um, <clears throat> so when you read the words uh, right or righteousness, you should think to yourself, oh, that could also mean just or justice, depending on the context. And when you read the words just and justice, you should, again, think that could also mean right or righteousness. Uh, but because we do have two words in English, I thought we'd go ahead and define both of those words in English. Now, it's been... Kind of the cool preacher thing to do for the past couple of weeks for everybody to use Webster's Dictionary. So I thought, I'm going to use Webster's Dictionary. And then I realized I don't own a Webster's Dictionary. So, dictionary.com, righteousness, characterized by uprightness or morality, morally right or justifiable, acting in an upright or moral way, or slang, those are some righteous waves. That was really on there, guys. <laughs> Secondly, just from dictionary.com. Guided by truth, reason, justice, or in fairness. Done or made according to principle or equity or equitable, which is a really good word, by the way. In keeping with truth or fact. Given or awarded rightly in accordance with standards or requirements. And especially in biblical use, righteous. That was actually on there. So even dictionary.com knows that righteous and just can be synonyms. It's mind-boggling to me personally um, that both of those words can be combined into one idea in Greek. And that word in Greek is dikaios. And really the most important thing here is that um, it's describing a quality that is inherent in God. Um, this is a quality of God's. And it's part of who he is. It's based on the character of God. Um, and righteousness is having the moral qualities, actions, and standards that line up with God's moral qualities, actions, and standards. And that's really important for us to remember. Now, fair is a much harder word to describe. 
Uh, biblically speaking, I spent a lot of time trying to find any biblical reference and any translation of the Bible that says fair, the word fair, and not like fair weather, fair beauty, but God is fair. And I could not find a single one. So I challenge any of you, find me one time in the entire Bible that it says God is fair or whatever. Um, Dictionary.com, however, (laughs) free from bias, dishonesty, or injustice, pretty standard, Uh, legitimately sought, pursued, done, given, etc. Basically speaking, someone is being fair when they weigh all the facts and they give a judgment without any regard to who the two parties are. So given the facts, giving an honest and even brutal judgment based purely on the facts with no partiality at all. Um, That's pure fairness. So, two big questions for the day. Is God fair? Can I get like five seconds? Can someone tell me, is God fair? No, he's biased. (laughs) All right. All right. I can agree with that, but we will get into that a little bit more. Is God just? Someone other than Aaron. Five seconds. Anyone? Why? Explain. One, one sentence. All right. Good enough for me. So first big question, is God fair? We'll get into that. Romans nine eighteen through 21. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make for the same, from the same lump a vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The first thing we need to realize when considering God's fairness is that the standards of righteousness and goodness and justice, they all come from God. There are many ways to ask this question. Um, A lot of us have have actually asked it in our own hearts. We've heard other people ask it. But very simply, how could a good God allow this to happen? Uh, How could a God allow, think of any, any injustice you can consider. Um, or justice and goodness requires that a good God do fill in the blank. We've all heard it. We've all thought it at some level. Even if we have never said it, many times our minds and our hearts honestly uh, believe that God has to do something. He has to fulfill some sort of requirement um, in order for him to, to be truly good and righteous and fair. We're saying God has to do this, or he's not good, and he's not righteous, and he's not fair. Um, Now, the problem is that this is essentially idolatry. Again, any time that you are worshiping someone or something that is not fully the God of the Bible, the God described by the Bible, that is idolatry. And in this case, either we have created a God in our minds that has to do this, or he's not a good God, Um, which would be worshiping a God that is not truly from the Bible, as I just said. Um, Or we are placing placing God under a set of rules that are outside of himself. If God has to follow the cosmological laws of just and right, or he's not a good God, well, that means those cosmological laws of just and right 
are higher than him and are a greater power than he is. And that's creating another deity altogether. Now, there's a really good word that describes what we're talking about here, other than uh, idolatry and heresy. Great word. Anybody have any idea what it is? Amaze students. Anthropomorphism. Great word. Uh, (laughs) Essentially means attribution of human motivation, characteristics, or behavior to inanimate objects, animals, natural phenomena, or especially in reference to God. If you attribute attributes that are human, characteristics that are human, emotions that are human, although, yes, some of those we do get from God, if you attribute these to God, it's called anthropomorphism, um, what we're doing is placing God under the set of cosmological standards that we are, in fact, under because of God. Yes, I have a cosmological right and wrong that I can choose to follow. And if I choose the wrong, I'm sinning. But those standards are created by God. God is not under those laws. He is the standard, the source, and even the definition of those laws and principles. Justice and fairness are not something to be compared to God to see if he measures up. Absolutely not. They're what God is. God defines these principles. They don't define him. i say that again. God defines the principles of righteousness, goodness, justice, fairness. God defines them. They do not define him. Very important concept. We're going to deal with a really harsh reality now. I don't like this personally, and I'm sure none of us do, uh, but we really have to hear it, and it is a biblical truth, straight out of Scripture. We have no right, no right to query the Almighty Creator with such questions on fairness because we don't even understand the elementary principles of it. Now, bear, bear with me here. I know people are screaming in their heads right now. <clears throat> how can I ask God, how are you being fair to me? God, how can this be fair, what you're doing to me, when he is the source of justice and righteousness and goodness? I only have my tainted, sinful understanding of what fair and just could even be. I'm sinful, naturally. I come out of the womb sinful. So I only have this, this, this elementary, barely understanding, and any good understanding that I have of righteousness and fairness come from God, because he is gracious and giving me his Holy Spirit, gracious and providing us with Scripture. That's the only reason we can even start to understand what these are in the first place. Now, am I saying never question God? Absolutely not. Um, God wants us to be honest. I think he wants believers that are honest with how we feel and honest with, with our questions with him. What, what I think God does not want, though, is blasphemy and belittling and sinful unbelief. Now, I, I'm, there's so much more I could say about this that I'm not going to get into because we don't have time. But God wants us to be honest with him, but God does not want people to blaspheme him, and that is sin. You have no right to say to God, you are unfair because you, that's sin. That is sin, absolutely. And I'm totally the first one to say, chief among sinners. So what is just and fair? Simply, they can be described as conforming to God's standards. They are not what we feel they should be. Fairness and justice are not what I feel they should be. They are not what, what gets me all oh, that shouldn't be fair. That's not what fairness even is. Although many times it's right on, thanks to the Holy Spirit. Fairness is what God says it is. But let's get right down here, and we we, we talked about this a little bit already. 
um, Aaron pointed out, is God fair? Absolutely not, at least not by human standards. Um, God is totally unfair. And thank God that he is unfair. Um, If God were to follow our standards of criminal law, for instance, every one of us in this room would be going to hell and there would be nothing we could do about it. You'd commit this crime, you get this punishment, and that is the end of it. And that is fair. If someone murders someone right now, if we saw a murder, our first thought is that man needs to go to prison, or woman, it could happen, needs to go to prison for life, or depending on your opinions, death penalty, we won't get into that. But that is, that is fair. That is just, that is righteous. And if the judge let him go, that would be unfair and be unrighteous. So is God being fair to me? Well, let's see. Uh, he did send his one and only son to die on the cross for me, even though I was his enemy. His enemy. I spit in his face daily, even, even though I've already accepted I still spit in his face. I'm a sinner. I'm dirty. I, I, I've even hated God with my actions. But God, but God, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Is that fair? that the one and only perfect human being to ever exist chose to go to the cross. He's up on the cross. He's God. He could decimate every one of those Roman soldiers for blaspheming his name. And instead he says, forgive them for they they don't know what they're doing. Oh, is that fair? No, it's not fair. It's grace. Beautiful, wonderful grace. Don't question God for his fairness. It's not our place. Um, just like we read from Paul. Who are you, O oh man, to question God? Read some Job sometime. It's great. Um, question humanity. Question the world. Question the devil. This is where all this unfairness comes from. Not from God. Yes, I will agree with Aaron that he is biased for his children. But he also opens it up to anyone. Anyone can accept that. And if you uh, have issue with that, come talk to me afterwards. Um, but, well, let me make one, one final point here before I move on. When it comes down to fairness, our scales are way, way off. Um, most times when we, when we question this, this, this matter of fairness, it comes down to a selfish, a selfish need, a selfish thought. God, it's so unfair that my buddy over here got all his Emmaus stuff paid for, and I'm $30,000 in debt. And I mean that. <laughs> it's unfair. That's not fair, God. Ah, oh, but that's so selfish of me. Wow, that's selfish. When I should be praising God that he provided my friend with all this money that he could go to college, and that he provided me with the credit so that I could take out the loan to go to college, and now I'm learning the hard way finances. That's a blessing. That's awesome. I'm being, being brought up and sometimes scourged. Um, but that's a beautiful thing. Sometimes, though, sometimes this is a very serious, legitimate, legitimate question. Um, is it fair to allow innocence to suffer? God allows innocence to suffer. Is that fair? Is it fair for that baby to die of AIDS in Africa when he's innocent? His parents did something stupid, but he's innocent. Is that fair? Now, I've read every passage of the Bible, thanks to Emmaus Bible College. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I never read a passage where God personally threw a baby out of a window. 
where God personally gave a baby AIDS. I've never read that. So why are we asking God, how is this fair? When, honestly, when it comes right down to it, um, he's not the doer of evil. He's the one making things right. Where are the doers of evil? Where are the ones who brought sin into the world? That was man in the Garden of Eden who brought sin into the world. That was the devil. The world is evil. God is good and righteous and just. And we're blaming him? It's blasphemy. And again, chief. Like I said, when it comes down, our scales are off and God is spot on. Is God impartial? And we've already said that, obviously, God is very partial towards his children, which hopefully all of us are. Um, But, on a little bit more shallow note, is God impartial towards certain types of people? Um, First off, I would just like to say no. God treats everyone with the same fairness, Hebrew people included. And that is the first thing we think of. Well, God spent all that time talking about the Hebrews in the Old Testament. That's all he talks about. It must be his favorite, absolutely. But I seem to remember a couple of passages in the New Testament where Christ is condemning those Pharisees, condemning them. Um, I don't know the passage in front of me, but um, am I incorrect in saying that um, when they talk about the unforgivable sin where you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he, it's in reference to what a Pharisee just said. Because a Pharisee just said that Jesus, that you're from the devil. That's what he said, basically. And then he said, that's the unforgivable sin. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not 100% on that. Don't quote me. But if that's the case, then, well, there's your answer right there. Does God treat the Jews the same as everybody else? Absolutely, yes. I've never seen a Jew who's been saved without Jesus Christ. He treats everyone the same. Um, he has no partiality towards skin color, towards uh, ethnicity, toward gender, anything like that. God is impartial in that way. Romans 2, 9 through 13. Uh, real quick, I won't read it just because of time, but uh, there will be tribulation, so forth and so on, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So tribulation to the Jews first and then the Greek. Interesting. Um, but he goes on just to say that salvation is for everyone, Jew first, but also the Greek. And he says there is no partiality with God for all have sinned, so forth and so on. Is God fair? Yes, by his standards, God is perfectly fair. Um, is he more than fair? Absolutely. Grace, abounding. It's not, it's, it surpasses our level of fairness. He's, he breaks fairness out, just throws it out the window, and he gives us so much grace. It's amazing. So don't question God's fairness. It's not our place. Next question, though. Is God just? Um, important. God is the judge of the earth. This is the harsher side of the issue. God is necessarily righteous in his judgments. He always rewards all his rational creatures directly proportional to their works. Ouch. As we have already seen, he's partial to none. Deuteronomy 10.17 reads, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He acquits the righteous, but he also condemns the guilty. Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Kind of hurts a little bit. Uh, Those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ uh, as our personal Savior, we are under grace. And so this is kind of an alien concept that we would be held responsible, directly responsible 
for everything that we do. Um, we're considered clean and justified, so how could God render to each person according to his or her actions, including us? But that is exactly what Romans 2, 5 through 8 says, and I recommend reading it. Romans 2, 5 through 8 on your own. Um, we do find ourselves in a bit of a pickle here. How can God acquit our sins, make us clean and before him, but also render to all according to their deeds? How is this possible? It seems like they contradict. Rome, no, that is the last one. There it is. Um, first off, God is whole. That's a really important concept. God is whole. He's not in parts. Let me explain. What I mean is that God's character is not composed of several parts that are trying to work harmoniously. God's attributes are fully unitary. They are one. God's mercy and his wrath, they're together. Um, have you ever read the passage about the fruits of the Spirit? We like to say the fruits of the Spirit because they're all listed. Um, in Greek, very interested to learn that that's fruit, as in they're all apples from the same tree. They're not apple, orange, banana, and you might have one, not the other. You have to have them all because they're from the same tree. It's a bushel. It's like a bunch of grapes. The same with God. It's not like he's got apple, oranges, and bananas all trying to work together and contradicting and trying to make them work, compromising. No. All of God's attributes work together, unitary. They are one as God is one. Uh, Anselm, great, great theologian of the past. I recommend reading him. He uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this. This is a great quote. How dost thou spare the wicked if thou art all just and supremely just? His conclusion, there is nothing in God's justice that forbids the exercise of God's mercy. And actually, the two go hand in hand. And that was very interesting to me. Um, the, obviously, the biggest link, the cross. The biggest link is the cross. And sometimes we miss that. The redemptive act by God, by which he is able to both satisfy his justice, his wrath, and give us grace through the complete forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future, for you Piper fans. <clears throat> in fact, righteousness, um, more than anything else in the Bible, get your concordance, look up the words righteous, just, justice, or right, any of those, and find every single reference, and I guarantee the vast majority have to do with salvation. Vast majority, righteousness and grace, right there together. I'm just going to give you a few, real quick, Psalms 103, 17. But the loving kindness, which can also be patience, by the way, of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Right next to each other. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 1, 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. God's justice um, and righteousness and his mercy and his grace, they work so well together. Um, the reason that we can be forgiven is because of his righteousness and his justice, not despite his righteousness and his justice. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to before we get into closing, talk about how God's justice and righteousness is fully dependent on some of his other qualities, some of his other attributes. Just to kind of link us all together. Fully dependent, first of all, on his omnipotence, holiness, and goodness. And I'll just run over that real quick. If God were not omnipotent, 
we actually couldn't trust that his justice would be fulfilled. You read a lot of times the Psalms, the psalmist is, is just in pure hope that God is going to fulfill his just. He's been, the wicked have been tormenting and attacking, but God's justice will take care of it. In the future, God will take care of it. We can't trust that if God's not fully omnipotent. We can't trust that God will actually fulfill his justice. And that's not a God that should be worshipped. If God was not holy or transcendent, we could not trust that his standards were the best thing for the world. How would he know what's best if he was not fully transcendent? If God was not a good God, then he'd be more a tyrant than a father. If God were not a good God, we could not trust him. What's he, he would not be giving us so much. He wouldn't be so great. If he wasn't good, the, just think how terrible the world would be. <clears throat> so lastly, this is a shared attribute. So how do I act this way? How, am, how can I possibly be fair, just, and right? Um, now, my favorite go-to answer, and it's so true, read your Bible seriously, take it to heart, have a prayerful, open relationship with God on a consistent basis. That's so true. But honestly, I fail at that daily. Daily. I drop the ball. So here's just some, some very basic things that we can think about that can just help us day-to-day lives. Um, first off, we must be impartial to all peoples. Do you have, honestly, do you have an unfair partiality? towards a certain group? Do you give unfair favor to a certain party? I mean, that could be based on anything. Young people, old people, male, female, black, white, whatever. Do you have an unfair impartiality towards another? Do you have an automatic prejudice? That's wrong. All of humanity has been made in God's image. So keep that in mind. Secondly, we must let our yeas be yeas and our nays be nays. Um... That means that regardless of the cost to ourselves, regardless of the difficulties, regardless of how it messes up our plans, our finances, anything, if you made a commitment, you follow through. Business commitments, um, promises to friends, uh, embarrassing, uh, promises, whatever. Anything that you've, that you've said you're going to do, you have to follow through. And that's a wonderful witness to the world around us, by the way, because that's not a common quality, especially in the business world. Finally, we must always garnish, great word, garnish our godly justice with grace. Forgive. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Every time. Give grace. When your brother wrongs you in the church, you forgive. Before they even ask, forgive. Now, obviously, it's his place or her place to come and ask forgiveness, but it's your place to forgive. Um, Outside of the church, in your workplace, Um, This is obviously most important in the church because if all of us were so quick to have grace and forgive, we wouldn't have any problems. People wouldn't get into arguments. We wouldn't be arguing over the carpet in the foyer. I mean, honestly, that's something that breaks churches apart. But you have to put yourself last. Crazy idea. And that's part of grace. Jesus Christ, God, died on the cross for your sins, putting you First, crazy concept, God putting you first, dying, suffering, taking your sin, and you can't forgive your brother for slighting you. Um, So that's my thoughts for the moment. Um, I pray that all of us, me especially, can follow through with this. Questions, come ask. And uh, I will pray quick, and then you guys have a great day. Lord, Father, God in heaven, thank you so much 
for your grace, for all that you've given us. Um, help us now as we worship and take the juice and the bread. Um, just help us to keep a mind on you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.